0: Hi, I'm Ulysses, and this is Music, Meaning, and Mystery Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to explore the mystery of music and valorize it. In this episode, I have a conversation with Clara Chandler. Clara is a cellist currently performing and teaching music in Cambodia. You can listen to Clara's music at SidewalkCellist.com. let me try this. Musically speaking, I first got to know you as the sidewalk cellist. You remember those days? Oh, yeah. Looking back, considering what I've learned through my research for this book writing project, uh, I see a spontaneous concert experience, which is a spontaneous community event. There's no guarantee of an audience. So, the, the, the community has to participate into making the experience an experience so it's participatory music which is as near as I can tell a more traditional use of music it's not just simply entertainment, it's not just a product delivered to your ears it's a community participation on top of that I see the sidewalk cellist setting herself up under a bridge and announcing her coming with chalk on, on the bridge and uh, on the sidewalk. So you have these kind of like these symbols kind of announcing the arrival of a sort of a magical cello fairy troll kind of a thing. Plus I remember the intersection specifically in East Van, it was so it's an intersection. So it's also at the crossroads. So there's something of a the crossroads folklore happening there. That's not a question. But it's also a bunch of things that I'm sure you'll have something to say about. So the floor is yours.
1: I mean, it started with busking. It started with just straight up taking my cello and hanging just outside the SkyTrain station because if I was inside, I needed the TransLink busking permit. It was always outside. And then it was always kind of noisy because there's traffic. And then occasionally somebody would stop and listen. And, you know, once in a while I'd get a comment like, I'd love to, I could stay here and listen for an hour, but like, I got to go. And then after a while, I realized that busking is okay, but not great. And what I really like is people to stop and, and listen, to just enjoy themselves, to take time out from their running around crazy, busy lives and just sit. So I thought, okay, where can I do this? That's close enough. That's convenient enough for people to actually just drop by. So I tried many different parks around Vancouver um, and sometimes it was a success. And sometimes, you know, there were some times where I was planning a concert and I'd wake up at, you know, 9 a.m. to like do all my chalk. And then at like 11 a.m. or noon, it would rain. (laughs) I was like, oh, I guess I can't do it today. So it was a little bit, the, the spontaneity was... A, a bit of a challenge to work with sometimes, like just Vancouver weather. And then it was so great because the people that would actually come were there because they wanted to be there and they stayed because they wanted to stay. It wasn't like this closed room concert experience where you come in and you sit down and you're like in this room and to leave would be in Western culture, rude, right? I think yes. most people, if you go to a concert, and it's like an actual sit down concert. And you're not really into it. You're gonna sit it out. You're gonna stay there and possibly suffer slightly and just be uncomfortable because it would be rude to get up and leave. So it was really great having these concerts where like I'd sit down and like play for an hour and people would come and people would stay. <laughs> it was really great. And then when I was going around town with my cello in my case, nobody knew what it was. And it's like, oh, is that a violin? Oh, is that a tuba? Oh, is that a guitar? Like, no, it's cello. So I also just wanted to like get the cello like out there in the world to be like, this is the cello, <laughs> this is not a guitar. is a great instrument that more people should know about because it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Same registers, the same range as the human voice. Ah. So when a cello plays, there's actually some resonance in the air cavities in the human body. Whereas like flute is, you know, mostly too high. Tuba is mostly too low. Guitar is also the same range, but it's not quite as loud. Right. So if you're playing guitar, it's like, you know, acoustic guitar. It's like right here. It's going to, those vibrations are going to be inside you but if you're 20, 30 feet away, not so much. And I guess outdoor cello resonance isn't carrying very much either, but it is a lovely instrument. It's good medicine.
0: The main difference between busking and doing a sidewalk cellist concert is an announcement. Is it that is simply a statement of intent that elevates or transforms the everyday busking experience to a community event?
1: Sure. Definitely a big part for me was always saying free outdoor cello concert. It was always free outdoor cello concert. And i uh-huh. would always have my case there. you always have my CDs for sale and, you know, I did always make a few bucks, um, but it was really like, come and listen to the music. It's not about you giving me money. It's about you receiving the music. No, I, I did get, you know, some, some people actually, I did get some flack. Like there was, there were a couple times where people, I guess, just had their, had a bee in their bonnet and picked on me for whatever reason. But it was always just trying to make it, make it an offering so that people that were maybe cello curious would would venture out, make it accessible. Because I guess another factor was that when I was growing up, my mom was a music librarian at the Vancouver Academy and she always got free tickets to the Vancouver Academy orchestra concerts. So I got to grow up going to the symphony like every month for free. And so I've heard an orchestra and I've heard all the instruments. But for a lot of people, they that's not accessible. That's not a possibility. And also Vancouver is a very multicultural place, right? There's people that come from elsewhere in the world and they just they haven't been exposed to Western instruments, classical instruments before. So it was just a way of just being like, here you go. Just check this out, drop by, walk by. If you don't, you want to make up your mind as you walk by. It's not about you giving me money. And then if you like what you hear, you know, stay as long as you want.
0: You're beginning to use language that I would characterize as religious or spiritual or sacred uh, because you're making an offering. So is there something about removing the transactional nature in most musical interactions that valorizes music?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean... One of the things that I, I, I studied and, and wrote about when I was finishing up my, my uh, bachelor's degree is the, the sort of duality as music as either a product or a process and how throughout most of history music was a process. It was something that people did. They did it together. You were either a musician or you're an audience member. And both of those actions were participatory. And then in the 20th century, like many things, music became a commodity. It became bought and sold and it became fast, right? It became disposable. When Beethoven was writing, he didn't, you know, yeah, he he did write a lot, but it wasn't like, you know, we didn't have the top 40, it wasn't like, okay, Beethoven's in and the next week, oh, Beethoven's out. Now, okay, now this. It's just like, no, you made something that was worthwhile so it would last. And music, like so many things in the 20th century, have become almost automated in their production, right? So music is made very quickly, very cheaply, just like, you know, Ikea furniture, (laughs) right? And, And we no longer have, I mean, not... Exclusively, but you know the mainstream music production, just like many industries, they're pumping them out every week. You know, really fast. You you enjoy it for a short period of time, and then eh, and then toss that out, and you get a new one. So trying to make it more into a process, and and inviting, breaking down the fourth wall. You know, breaking down this barrier between audience and performer. Because, um, again, that's something that happened in the in the 20th century you know, during Beethoven's time. Like if somebody wanted to, like, yell and yell something to the stage during a concert, they would. It wasn't this mm. like, you know, sit still, don't move, uh, don't clap until the very end. You know, that's a 20th century invention. Like, you audience, you sit there, do nothing, just appreciate what's being done to you. Mm. And then at the end, you can give us your money. So, breaking down that barrier, making it somewhere really casual—a park, a sidewalk—and um, letting people ask questions, taking requests, um, doing little things. Like there was one year, I did a coloring contest, and there was you know a few times I brought some extra like little percussion instruments and gave them out to the audience. Be we like, okay, make some noise. I'm playing my circus song. Um, so just yeah make it more involved and that was Mm. mostly like pretty good that was like a lot of fun and I still try to do that as much as possible yeah just making making music a a process again so it's not this thing disposable thing at that
0: earlier you you talked about uh, the cello being medicine and I think we can I think you'll agree with expanding that to music being medicine at least in potential i think that may be a way to word it that even more intensely highlights the contrast between product and the other thing so a product is, is, is a consumable item is it, there's something more like of a like a disposability to it whereas a medicine like you say is good medicine is a process if you're going to heal deeply it's generally not a you know single use type of thing, right? It's a it's a process thing. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that you're talking to me about medicine, because so far, obviously, I'm, I'm only two years into the project, I expect it'll take me 10. But so far, my thesis is that at the deepest possible discoverable point in human history, music was used precisely as a medicine. But illness was also construed very differently. Illness wasn't a matter of, you know, plumbing, mechanics, molecules. Illness was a matter of, it was related to your spirit. So you had a soul illness. So in order for the shaman to heal you, he had to bring back your soul or the pieces that were missing thereof. And in order to do that, the shaman would drum or sing among other techniques. So I'm wondering what it is about music that calls the soul back. Why are we somehow intuitively musicians know that music is important for some sort of healing? What's going on, Clara?
1: I would say that the what, what pulls the soul away, right? The thing the, the 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 mechanism that fragments us is usually the thinking mind, right? And this goes back you know, thousands of years with the Vedas. If you're thinking, you're probably causing yourself harm in some way, right? Because the mind is a tool and you know it's we've evolved to think so that we can survive. But surviving and and really living right? having a, a deep, meaningful experience, those are different things. If you're listening, if you are truly, truly, deeply listening, you are not thinking. You cannot think and listen at the same time. So if you have something pleasant to listen to, the chances of actually listening continuously are much higher versus having something that's terrible noise, you're probably gonna wanna try to block that out mentally. So when we listen, we stop thinking. When we slow down the mind, I mean that's that's meditation. And that's, you know, you can call it by 30, 10,0 different names, but that's at the core of every religious experience. As you slow down and you pray or you meditate or you you have your rituals where again you're trying to let go of your day-to-day surviving thinking mind and get into the heart get into the soul probably one of the reasons why basically every religion ever also has music in in their in their rituals usually very simple music but not always and there's so many different kinds of music because there's so many different kinds of people with different tastes and you know what sounds appealing to one person doesn't sound appealing to another. So we've had music evolve in so many different ways. You know, for some people, you know, punk is what they want to listen to. And so they can do, listen to that and they can go to a concert and they can headbang. And that's when they finally can let go and stop thinking and just enjoy themselves, get back into their, their being. And for someone else, they want to listen to, you know, Debussy or Bach or something. So there's, there's something for everybody in music. So in your, in your email, you had asked, what sort of wisdom has, have I gained from this? And this ties also back into being the product and process and, and the offering. And what I learned from mostly from my experiences here in Cambodia with my friend Linda is that in order to do good, in order to be a healer, in order to make the world a better place, one must humble themselves and one must make themselves a servant because you do not help people with top-down solutions. I cannot come to Cambodia and be like, I know what's good for you. Here, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this and you're gonna appreciate this and here, I'm gonna shove this down your throat with all my good intentions and make things better. That's just not how it works. You had to be like, hello, I'm here. What do you need? What do you want? How can I help you? Let me learn from you, rather than be like, I know everything, so I'm gonna help you. And then, yeah, bringing that with me back to, back to Canada and doing the free cello concerts. And it's one of the reasons why I take requests. Like, what can I do for you? Thank you for coming to my thing, you know, where I organize this. Thank you for taking time out of your day to come check this out and take a chance on me. Now, what can I do for you? What do you want?
0: Okay, a bit of a pivot, uh, but sort of related to what we've been talking about. I know that you've performed at least once, but I think more than once, in churches. So I would like to know if there's something uh, distinct about that sort of performance, as opposed to a what you might call a quote-unquote secular venue.
1: So one of the most memorable experiences that I have is playing two times at the St. Paul's Labyrinth in the West End. And, and both times I was invited to just come and just share music that was you know, welcoming and, and conducive to you know, a, a meditative environment. And people would come in and sometimes you know, sometimes just sit Um, There's some chairs by the wall and, and most people, you know, would walk the labyrinth. It was so, it was so heavy and so light at the same time. Like it was so, it was so meaningful, so profound because it wasn't just, it wasn't just that people were listening. It was people were listening while processing whatever it is that they had going on. So you could feel people's grief and you could feel their struggle. And, you know, occasionally I could, I could just, I could see them crying. And then also, you know, joy and then feeling their prayers, you know, to be in that space. It was so powerful to feel the music and the prayers and the thoughts and the, and the struggles and everything just kind of all melding together in this beautifully acoustic space. So I, it felt it felt so powerful. Like people are here for healing and they're here for the medicine and for the prayers. And it's just like, oh, I just wanted to just give them everything. And it was just like so beautiful, um, so inspiring and just, you know, trying to make every note as pure and beautiful as possible and then have and then afterwards, you know, having incredible uh, feedback and, and, and gratitude people that really did receive the medicine. Yeah. And, you know, that happens in, in secular venues as well, you know, it happened in the park, it happened in the sidewalk, you know, every once in a while, it have somebody walk by and, oh, can you, can you play this, please? Do you you know the swan? Do you know this Bach piece and playing it for them? And then being like, oh my gosh, wow, thank you. I needed that. You know, I needed that medicine, I needed to hear that music, you know, I've got this going on in my life. And, you know, when I hear that song, it reminds me to be okay. And it happens from time to time in secular venues, but it was like supercharged in that St. Paul's Labyrinth, for sure.
0: Well, the St. Paul's Labyrinth is a hyper sophisticated version of the chalk writing that you did under the bridge. It's a hyper-sophisticated statement of intent. It's uh, I see it almost like a, a technology, right? Whereas the chalk outline that says sidewalk cellist at such and such a time is kind of like the you know single gear bicycle of equivalent to the St. Paul's Ang- Anglican Church acoustics with the maze and the labyrinth being kind of like the Ferrari of that level of, of technology, right? So you, you talked about the the people receiving the medicine, you talked about you feeling their prayers and, and their, what they were processing their grief and so forth. You did say that you were able to observe it visibly. Uh, You know, you saw people crying, but I'm assuming you, weren't able to see their prayers so how could you sense that well is it a feeling in your body is it what is going on i know that's going to be difficult to describe i've been in that sort of experience before but i'm trying to figure out some sort of language for musicians to to try to wrap their mind about around what's going on there and obviously it's a it's it's a it's it's a valuable experience. You've witnessed it and you saw people being able to benefit from that gift. But I feel like we kind of have to try to demy- demystify it a little bit so that more musicians can recognize it when it does happen. Because I think it happens and we sort of like think, oh, well, we sort of dismiss that. But there's something extremely strange. There's a high strange thing going on there. So what, what is that experience? Describe it for me.
1: So the connection, the connection between the giver and the receiver, right, when somebody is really receiving the music, you know, sometimes there are visual cues for when that's happening, you know, it can be simple things like they're not looking at their cell phone, (laughs) they don't have headphones in maybe maybe they're making eye contact with you maybe they're staring like right at you maybe their jaw is slack and they're like maybe their eyes are closed and maybe maybe they're dancing maybe they're like in rhythm with whatever it is that you're doing some and some people could be completely still and just like staring at the wall and they might be having the same experience so it's pretty obvious, I think, if they're totally not with you, they're not receiving and you're just background to them, you know, they're talking on their phone, they're talking with their friend, they're doing something else. But when they are receiving, you know, that can, that can be more difficult to identify sometimes. Sometimes it's like really obvious. And I think it can be uncomfortable for some musicians because it's it's a greater responsibility when you're playing for someone that's like really listening versus somebody that's just you're oh, you're just kind of in the background. Somebody that's intently listening might notice if you make a mistake or play a note out of tune or you know drop a beat or something like that. So it can be a little bit intimidating to recognize that that's going on in real time, right, especially for, Um, you know, a lesser experienced musician, a younger musician, or or simply someone that's more prone to stage fright. But when I when I was at St. Paul's Labyrinth, there were also things like I could see there were some people that had their rosary. I could visually see the prayers because they were moving the beats in the rosary. And they also at the Saint Paul's Labyrinth They have a table set up where people can write their prayers and put them on the wall. We were actually sticking them on the wall behind me when I was playing yeah. there. So in some ways, like I could, I could see their prayers. But by and large, how do we recognize when that connection is is received? Well, again, like how do you observe? something that's not really observable, it's not really objective. It's yeah. more about getting out of that thinking mind as the musician, as yes. the singer, and and not really be thinking about who's receiving and who's not, but just to be offering as if everybody is. As if every single person in the audience is your number one fan. As if every single person is at rock bottom and needs the medicine, needs the boost, needs the love. As if every single person is is your lover, you know? And not like romantically, but like, or your best friend, right, just to just give fully every time anyways. And then it will happen. It might be one person, it might be a cat, but it'll happen.
0: Okay, so uh, our traditional closing question, uh, you talked a lot about listening earlier. So the closing question is, what should people listen to?
1: Listen to the silence behind the noise. It's like whenever there's like chaos around you and you're feeling overwhelmed, see if you can hear the silence behind that. So if you're really listening, you're not Hmm. thinking you're not thinking that already solving some of your problems we should listen to the past we should listen to the lessons of the past huh. right because i'm just kind of thinking about okay what's going on in the world right now <laughs> like how are people screwing themselves well they're making the same mistakes that they have been making for hundreds of years so maybe we should listen to the lessons that we've done you know already this L- listening back in time like not just the lessons but you know the the music that's come out of those turmoiled states yeah right? like what's going on in in Myanmar right now is not that dissimilar from like Germany like you know early Nazi Germany like or like early you know Soviet Russia and it's like the music and the art that came out of that time to try to inspire people like to keep going and to persevere and, and to not repeat those mistakes. Like...
0: Thank you very much for having this conversation with me. It was very edifying. I really appreciate it, Clara.
1: Thank you, Ulyssi. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Two things to reflect on for the month. What if each time we play music, we make a statement of intent and sacralize the space in our own way. What effect might that have on ourselves, on the music and on people who listen to it? Also, Clara suggests that we listen to our ancestors for wisdom as to what kind of music we may need to make in our times. What kind of music do you think that is? I'd love to hear your thoughts.